0: From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Welcome to a special edition of the show we're rushing to get in before this weekend's Sweet 16 in the NCAA men's basketball tournament. Why the hurry? Because three Jesuit schools have made it this far. The Gonzaga Bulldogs, Sister Jeans, Loyola Chicago Ramblers, and the Creighton Blue Jays. There's nobody more prepared to talk about these teams and the past and present of Jesuit hoops than my guest today, John Gassaway. John is a college basketball analyst for ESPN, where he largely focuses on the growing field of sports analytics. He's even taught basketball analytics at Columbia University. John is also the author of a brand new book called Miracles on the Hardwood, the hope and a prayer story of a winning tradition in Catholic college basketball. The book is chock-full of fascinating stories and history and is a must-read for any fan of Jesuit Hoops. After we talked about the book and this Jesuit-heavy Sweet 16, plus this week's passing of Jesuit Hoops legend Elgin Baylor, we took turns drafting the best all-time players from Jesuit schools. Check out at Jesuit News on Twitter to vote for which team you think would win a hypothetical matchup on the court. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Well, John Gassaway, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's a a great time of year in March.
0: Yeah. Well, for someone like yourself who covers college basketball for a living, it is the, the most exciting time and excited to, ha- to have you on. We'll get into your brand new book just came out perfectly timed uh, for the tournament, Miracles on the Hardwood, the hope and a prayer story of a winning tradition in Catholic college basketball. Um, but I, we moved up our conversation by, uh, you know, a week and a half or so, because we right now we're talking on a, a Wednesday Right before the Sweet 16 starts, we got three Jesuit schools in the Sweet 16 of the men's tournament, which is uh, very exciting. So we thought, oh, we got to be timely. Let's let's jump into this. So um, so let's let's start with um, some some of that news. But even before we get into that, there's a bigger um, news story uh, in the world of, of Jesuit basketball, which is the the passing of uh, Elgin Baylor, maybe the most underrated legend in the history of basketball, uh, who played in the NBA for a long time for. Mostly for the Lakers, and uh, starred at Seattle University Jesuit School, taking them to the NCAA championship game. Just and thinking about your your book and your research, anything uh, you any reflections on on Elgin Baylor and his life and career?
1: His was a remarkable story, and uh, I didn't know it. I don't feel like many people do know it, but he grew up in Washington D.C and was an instant sensation as a high school player. He attracted national attention, and yet such was the uh, hierarchy and, and structure at the time, this is the 1950s, that you know, this renowned basketball player, his first stop after high school was the College of Idaho on a football scholarship of all things and of all places. Uh, He was spotted more or less instantly by the coach at Seattle University, uh, brought to there. He single-handedly, I'm tempted to say, uh, took Seattle U to the 1958 national championship game where they they lost to Kentucky. He had either cracked or possibly even broken ribs from the the previous game against Kansas State. Uh, Just a a remarkable uh, player and and story. And as you say, he, he went on to a a Hall of Fame career with the Lakers, but uh, definitely the the moment in the sun uh, for the Jesuits at, at Seattle University in 1958
0: yeah so if you look there's kind of hard to find great video highlights of his play since you know he played before a lot of games or even on TV uh, but if you the, the highlights I've seen in this in the past couple of days just really amazing you can see how he was ahead of his time doing kind of acrobatic things with the ball the way he played kind of above the rim one of the first players to really do that um so I know it's been kind of hailed as a like, again, ahead-of-his-time model for the prototypical kind of small forwards that we see today's game kind of flying all over the place. Another interesting thing I saw about him, too, was that one of the reasons he had to wind up, wound up in Idaho was, you know, this kind of institutional racism at the time that, like, as a, a black player, he didn't really get any offers kind of closer to home, even though he was... A star like none of the D.C. schools pursued him, which is how he wound out out west. I know that theme comes up in your book, and we can talk a little bit about that, too. You can't really talk about the history of college basketball in this country without talking about, you know, some racism kind of deeply embedded.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a uh it's a checkered past uh and uh the catholic church has uh, good and bad stories to tell there uh and we can we can get into that in the conversation
0: yeah so just before we we turn the clock back too far though we have to start again with the uh the big news we have three jesuit schools in the uh the sweet 16. um i, I guess probably who's gotten the most press uh is the return of the loyal the ramblers from leonard university of chicago Uh, Largely, I think because of two figures, of course, Sister Jean, their chaplain who was able to make it to the game despite being 101 years old. Uh, And then their kind of star player who kind of has like a plumber's mustache and uh, (laughs) plays can't maybe can't jump over a piece of paper, uh, Cameron Crutwig. Uh, who's again, just does all these crafty things and has been successful there. Anyway, they're back in the sweet 16 after upsetting, um, kind of one of their favorites to win the whole thing, Illinois, which I know is your alma mater, right? I'm sorry to have to talk about this. I'm sure it's still painful. It Uh, is.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It is my alma mater. And, uh, I was, half of me was, uh, pulling for sister Jean, uh, because I thought it would be a a good, uh, good news peg in, in support of the new book that I just written, but the other half of me wanted my my team to win, so uh, I guess it was a win win situation. And so Sister Jean won. How has
0: uh, how has Loyola been able to replicate the success? They, you know, they're a mid major school. They, that means they don't play one of these big conferences like the Big Ten. They don't necessarily have their pick of the the top players from uh, from their region, even. Uh, but they they're back. You know, with this kind of sustained success after making their run to the Final Four three years ago. What what has gone into that success for them?
1: Uh, Their coach, Porter Moser, is a really bright guy who obviously is a a hot commodity now, has been for a couple of years, and rightfully so. They play tremendous defense, as uh, Illinois can attest painfully. Uh, Nothing was easy against the Ramblers, particularly in the first half. And then Krutwig, who you've mentioned, uh, he might look uh, unprepossessing visually, but uh, he's He's legit on both sides of the ball. Offense, he's got great post moves. And uh, defense, he, he stripped the ball from uh, Io DeSumo in the open floor. Uh, DeSumo being a first-team All-American, so that's, that's saying something. Uh, they are uh, savvy, and they don't beat themselves, and they take care of the ball and uh, make it hard for you to score. It's, it's a good way to play.
0: So, as I mentioned, Sister Jean takes a lot of the headlines from the Lola program, especially ones that make it into the, the Catholic world. Now, I know in, in your book, you start your book kind of um, with a, kind of a conversation you had with her right around her 100th birthday, uh, which is right when we had her on the, the podcast as well uh, last year. Um, so just curious about your connection with her and any memories you have from uh, talking to her. She is someone who seems like she really does know and uh, care deeply about basketball with a pretty sharp wit and uh, oh, good awareness of what's going on.
1: She knows her basketball. She played uh, high school basketball in San Francisco in the 1930s, and we talked about that. There, there's all kinds of great stuff that, that couldn't uh, find its way into the book, but that I <laughs> I have, and that I'll, I'll find some purpose for sometime. But yes, uh, I listened to her appearance on your podcast. It is right when uh, I saw her, and uh, I, I researched her in part through her appearance on this podcast and it was just a delight and not at all what i expected because she's sister Jean, and this was coming off of the the uh, national uh, coverage that she inspired at the 2018 final four i thought i would have to go through a series of you know increasingly important uh, bodyguards to get at her and in, instead uh, you go to Loyola Chicago, you go to the student union and there's a food court and then right off of that, you know, that's the office where she, there she is. She's sister Jean. And, uh, to my, uh, somewhat annoyance, you know, our conversation was repeatedly interrupted by students just coming in to say, Hey, sister T, you know, she greets them by name. Uh, she, she knows them. So just, uh, a, a real, uh, unique figure you know, anybody who attains that age is. But then beyond that, uh, her, her whole demeanor, her deep granular knowledge of the sport that she obviously loves. Uh, she talked at length about the 1963 national championship team. And uh, it, it was just a real uh, privilege to, to spend uh, about 90 minutes with her. And as you say, I, I uh, opened the book with, with that discussion. Uh, Little did I know that she would be the top trending uh, topic on Twitter the week my book came out, so that was... uh... That was a good
0: coincidence. Yeah, not terrible timing there. I just saw a note about Sister Jean yesterday. that The day she was born, August twenty first, nineteen nineteen, Babe Ruth tripled and drove in two runs, batting cleanup for the Red Sox. Uh, so of course, before he joined the Yankees, so she's seen a lot uh, sports and otherwise uh, in her life, and um, continues to be. It's I, you know, in terms of like, you couldn't ask for a better, you know, uh, represent, representative of the the church to be kind of featured nationally, internationally. She uh, again brings that that joy and hospitality, and I just love her prayer too. If you look at like her prayer from the Illinois game, she's praying, but also giving a scouting report of like, oh, we got to look out for, you know, they're not going to maybe shoot that well from three. We've got to rebound, you know, we have to play good defense <laughs> Like in the prayer, which I love. She knows she only gets a little bit of time with the team. So she's got to take advantage to, uh, to work some uh, strategy. in. um,
1: that's, uh, yeah, that's exactly what she says in, in, in the book is, you know, I, I was trying to Uh, you know, get at the the Catholic secret sauce for for basketball, and that's exactly what she said, and I just quoted her directly, you know, well, we do the prayer before the game, and sometimes I give the scouting report then. (laughs) So, I mean, it's very much intertwined, and uh, she's a remarkable figure.
0: Sure. So the other uh, two Jesuit schools will be playing each other in the Sweet 16, which I guess in some ways is good because you'll guarantee one in the Elite Eight, but also sad because one will be out. Um, but you have the the Gonzaga, which is, I think, the number one overall seed, right? They were kind of they're undefeated this season. Just a really incredible year. Another one for them uh, playing against Creighton. Um, so just what's your scouting report for that game? What should we be uh, watching for uh, as we tune that one on?
1: Yeah, Creighton had better uh, come ready to play because Gonzaga is on the cusp or has a chance to do something that hasn't been done in college basketball for 45 years. Uh, They are undefeated, and if they were to win the national championship with a perfect record, uh, the last team that we saw do that was uh, Bob Knight's Indiana team all the way back in 1976. So this is uh, pretty remarkable. It's uh, rare for a team to reach the NCAA tournament undefeated. Uh, that hasn't happened in six years. So uh, Gonzaga comes by its its overall number one seed status. Uh, honestly, they're a, a tremendous uh, offensive team. And what I would say to the Blue Jays and uh, their coach Greg McDermott is: make your shots because once. Gonzaga rips off a a defensive rebound and and they're out in transition, it's it's pretty much over. The best way to nullify them is to make them take the ball out of the basket. And uh, Creighton's pretty good at doing uh, exactly that, and and Marcus Zagorowski is certainly a a fine player. So it should be a a good good game for uh, not all of the Jesuit marbles, but uh, for a lot of them.
0: So I maybe you touched on this in the book. Um, since we moved up our conversation, I haven't gotten through the whole book yet. But so Gonzaga to me is a fascinating story because like Spokane, like the like eastern Washington, like it's not, you know, some of these. It's not like a classic place to go for for college basketball. They, they turned themselves into this kind of national powerhouse, not only with players who stay for three or four years, but for instance, they have like the, one of the top-rated freshmen in the country this year, who'll probably leave for the NBA in Jalen Suggs. Um, how how have they done this? Like what what has led to Gonzaga's kind of really now two-decade run of success?
1: Yes. Uh, how have they done this? You know that has been the the question that uh, that has been the hill that dozens of feature writers uh to my eye <laughs> have died on uh, for for well over a decade uh because you know everybody would love to be able to do this uh i i even got asked i can't remember who it was uh, in, in a local interview, uh, this year, you know, why can't our team, you know, do what Gonzaga, you know, we, we want to do that. Uh, it's not that easy. And that is why the chapter in the book devoted to the Bulldogs is quite self-consciously titled Gonzaga and mystery and, and not to, (laughs) not to drag not to drag Catholicism into a discussion of college basketball. But I, I feel, uh, very, strongly that, uh, just as in, uh, in Catholicism, we, we reserve space for the, the concept of mystery. I think we really have to do that with Gonzaga because yes, their coach is great. And yes, they, uh, former players maintain a strong connection with the program. And, uh, yes, the player, the current players do things together and, and bond, uh, but lots of other programs do that, too, all those things, and sure. they don't you know, rip off undefeated uh, records. So uh, I, can, I can cite chapter and verse about you know, why they're good at basketball and the things that they do well, but uh, how they've sustained that success over, over two decades now. Uh, how they've done it as a program in the West Coast Conference, which is remarkable. I mean, that conference is what we refer to as a mid-major conference, even though Gonzaga at this point is anything but a mid-major. And uh, they continue to talk about themselves as scrappy outsiders. And uh, part of their origin story is pioneering the development of international recruiting because, you know, they couldn't get a uh, first pick of the, the best uh, players in domestically. Well, now they can. And as you mentioned, you know, Jalen Suggs is, is proof of that. Gonzaga can stand on its own two feet and go up against Kentucky and Duke and Kansas and the best of them and land a guy like Suggs that everybody wanted. He was a, a tremendous uh, star coming out of high school and Gonzaga got him. So uh, it's it's good for them to continue to talk about themselves that way. Uh, Those Augustinians over at Villanova, they do the same thing, even though they've won two national titles. uh, They style themselves as scrappy underdogs, and it's, uh, it's a tremendously successful way to go for Gonzaga.
0: So, yeah, let's let's um, transition into talking about your book now that we're ready for uh, the Jesuit Sweet 16 coming up this weekend. Um, you have these, again, three great success stories this year that are rooted in this kind of long tradition, just like the latest chapter in this tradition of Jesuit hoops and more broadly Catholic hoops. Um, so, yeah. So this book uh, just come out, which right now I see on Amazon, number one in the basketball coaching category, which I don't. Know how that gets decided, but hey, uh, to be leading Amazon and <laughs> anything is pretty exciting. It's not really about coaching, um, but uh, yeah. So tell me about like where the book came from, the origins of the book. Uh, how how is this a project uh, that you landed on?
1: This book stems directly from the 2018 Final Four, where uh, Villanova won it all. Uh, They won a a championship for the second time in three years at that point. And uh, Loyola Chicago made a surprise run to that year's uh, national semifinals. Uh, Sister Jean was uh, very much the, uh, the, the uh, eye of a, of a hurricane of, of national, and as she put it, international coverage uh, that year. So uh, if you think back, uh, it seems very long ago in, in more ways than one, but if you think back three years, uh, there were feature stories uh, in national uh, content providers about, wow, Catholic college basketball, why are Catholics so good? Uh, here they go again doing this. Uh, and there were stories like that very much in the 1980s uh, when uh, Georgetown and Villanova were, were, were so good. So coming off of that coverage, uh, I had a conversation with my agent who said, well, why not, you know, why not a book treatment of the same question that everybody's talking about. And my immediate response was, surely that has been done. And a little light Googling uh, showed that I was mistaken. It had not been done. And the proof that it's a great idea is now uh, the book has just come out. Uh, everybody who sees the cover talks about what a beautiful cover it is, which it is. I had nothing to do with that, of course. And everybody says, what a great idea for a book it is, which it is. And I didn't come up with the idea either. So my fondest hope is, you know, once everybody actually sits down and reads the book, I, I hope I, uh, Hope I did as well as the cover artist and and my agent did uh, their their parts of the job. But uh, I certainly enjoyed researching and writing it because it is a a colorful tradition with uh, many great stories.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll link to the, the book in the show notes. And the, the cover really is uh, beautiful. It's a uh, stained glass windows. But uh, each, instead of having, you know, Mary and Joseph and Jesus, it has um, four Jesuit college basketball players uh, on the cover uh, in the stained glass window. So, yeah, it's really beautiful and striking. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that, that's that's exciting, certainly. I'm just wondering, though, like for you. So you went to Illinois. Well, why did your um, your agent think, oh, you, like John, you would be the person to write this book? Um she, uh,
1: it was great. She uh, had. We were about, I don't know, fifteen minutes into the conversation when she found a tactful and politically correct but unmistakable of way of asking, "You are Catholic, right?" So uh, I, I am Catholic. Although I attended a, a public Big Ten uh, institution, I'm, I'm not a cradle Catholic, but I've, I've been Catholic for some time now, and uh, I, I leapt at the chance to tackle this, uh, book. I, I fancied that I knew a lot of the stories and and I did. I'm, I'm a history buff and I love college basketball. It's, it's my job, of course. But, uh, I, I had no idea how much I would learn and how much I didn't know. And it was, it was just a delight to, uh, get to do this, to go talk to the people I talked to, not only sister Jean, but others. And, uh, I didn't know a pandemic was coming, but it was uh, it, it was a good uh, project to have once everybody was shut up indoors. Uh, I, I got to, to write a book and I, I really enjoyed that. I, I hope it does come through in the pages of the book.
0: Yeah, I just really love your, your voice and, and style. And uh, again, you're pulling from great sources including it seems like jesuit archive sources uh some really uh, interesting letters and, and things from the earliest history of basketball and you really do go back to the beginning and so for for people who might not be uh, as familiar with, with the history how did uh basketball college basketball at catholic schools become such a force uh, at these again relatively small schools uh, in in cities like how was how it you know how how did what's the, like the quick over like bird's eye view vision of how we got to today from you know the, the 1890s
1: Yeah, the the 32nd version there is that uh, James Naismith uh, was, of all things, uh, A, Canadian, and B, uh, a devout Presbyterian, and he uh, specifically invented basketball at the behest of the YMCA, which was trying to uh, evangelize through sports uh, and evangelize in a a Protestant sense through sports. And Catholic colleges uh, got in on the ground floor of this new, de- new invention and took off and, and never looked back. All or many uh, colleges of different affiliations and strikes did the same thing. It was not an exclusive Catholic possession by any means. But what was really uh, interesting and notable was that this, uh, th- this embrace of basketball At Catholic campuses, it was entirely student-led. It was not a case where uh, Naismith figures were saying, and of course Naismith himself was a relatively young man at the time, but still uh, authority figures were not saying, here, let's do this. Instead, students uh, picked it up themselves and, and ran with it. They formed their own Uh, teams at the club level before it was officially an intercollegiate sport. Uh, They were getting in contact with other college uh, campuses and saying, hey, let's play basketball before there were such things as conferences. And, uh, you know, you see it starting to develop very, very early in the 1900s. And I get into this in the book, but it happened to coincide with a time when uh, the Catholic colleges themselves were, were going through some challenges and some stresses and uh, this was one thing that those campuses found that students really embraced and liked. And uh, they, uh, they said, yeah, it's good to have students happy and doing this. And it very quickly became identified as uh, not the Catholic exclusive uh, possession of, of Catholic colleges, but definitely one that you could count on Catholic colleges having.
0: When I thought about, you know, this history, like why Catholic colleges and basketball, like I, this is in my mind, I just go like, oh, well, you know, it's an immigrant country. It's, you know, these waves of Catholic immigrants uh, from Europe coming, uh, settling in, in cities largely. So you have these, you know, these very heavily Catholic cities, uh, especially in the Northeast, but also, you know, in, in the West Coast, Midwest. Um and then, like, you know, you're in, so you're starting schools there. Jesuits, especially, like, very, like an urban religion, uh, sorry, not religion, an urban uh, order, more so than, say, Franciscans, who would often be like, you know, the more pastoral vision, uh, or Benedictines, who are kind of separate from the city. Uh, Jesuits, really in the city. And so, wondering, like, okay, so they're starting their schools where their people are in the city. They don't have much space because of, you know, they're in a city. So they can't, like, put out big fields for, it's not as easy to put out fields for football or other sports. So I, like, draw a line there from like the immigrant history of the church to why basketball is big. Is that, did you like see any of that in your research? Is that like bear out in the facts or is that just me just, uh, you know, kind of making up things that don't, don't actually check out?
1: No, no, that, that's actually a a good thumbnail right there. It's all true. Uh, Basketball was specifically invented to have something uh, that, that uh, the YMCA Participants could engage in in during snowy winters in Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, in a confined space indoors. So that all checks out, and it was embraced uh, by the the Jesuit institutions in their uh, urban campuses. That's true. The funny thing about basketball, however, is that it was more or less instantly popular. Uh, it quickly became a global uh, activity within two or three years with their, you know, documented instances of it being played in Japan and overseas. So uh, yes, Catholics embraced it in their, in their urban settings and, and their uh, immigrant p- uh, populations did, but so did the Ivy League, so did uh, everybody. Uh, Naismith was something of a genius because he invented something that was so popular so soon, and we're still perfecting, you know, low 130 years later. So he was a he was an interesting guy, no doubt.
0: Yeah, I really liked the beginning of your book. You kind of set out these kind of different, you know, not versions necessarily, but approaches to the game as it was popular everywhere. You talk about kind of prairie style basketball again, thinking of Naismith and his connections to Kansas and, and Canada and. Uh, not necessarily, again, from, you know, the Northeast originally. Uh, The prairie vision, you see that today with schools, you know, like, well, it's Illinois and and Kansas and the Iowas uh, of the world. Uh, But then also the the parish vision, which would be, again, often this, you know, this Catholic uh, model or urban model. But you have these kind of different schools essentially growing at the same time. Um, Do you find that to be like a helpful way of like kind of looking at um, like the current, Do those divisions still like kind of exist, or those tendencies? Can you just talk a little bit about um, that? Your vision of prairie and uh, parish basketball.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, In the book, I I refer to them as as the parish and plains uh, Plains, tendencies. Yeah, (laughs) parish and plains tendencies, and you know the plains uh, tendency uh, kind of built uh, the institutional infrastructure that we that we live with today. I mean, definitely, it, it you know. It built the NCAA, for one thing. It built the NCAA tournament. Uh, the NCAA tournament was the brainchild of an Ohio State coach, uh, Fog Allen, a longtime legendary uh, coach at Kansas, who in turn was coached by Naismith himself, uh, a giant of the of the Plains uh, tradition. Uh, these are big figures, and uh, they they more or less uh, built uh, one strain of the sport. And at the same time, uh, there was this parish tradition, and their event, uh, in contrast to the NCAA tournament, was the NIT. And for the first 15 years of each tournament, the NIT predated the NCAA by one year. And in some sense, the NCAA tournament was created uh, to compete with the NIT, the, the National Association of Basketball Coaches, led by Fogg Allen said, well, you know, they're they're making money, which they were. The NIT was a private venture. Uh, we should we should have a tournament where we we have the the money go to the NCAA. So a tournament was born, and these uh, these traditions uh, nourished a, a rivalry and their their postseason events were were competitors. And we still see, you know, flashes of that to this day. and uh, certainly, you know, Kansas and Indiana and the Big Ten and, and the Big 12, those are those are proud and storied uh, traditions, as are uh, the Jesuit basketball schools. So uh, I, uh, I get a kick of, of seeing, you know, these these tendencies uh, sometimes, uh, you know, flash even, uh, you know, decades and decades later. It's, it's still uh, one way of, of tracing the uh, the roots of the game.
0: Yeah. And again, for me, it's reading the book was thinking about, oh, yeah, that's true that the way that, say, college football would, you know, kind of have these regional, you know, where it's like regionally dominates, especially in the south uh, then like or Big Ten Midwest country. You have now the growth of, of basketball and successful teams from really across the country in like every setting. So um, yeah, so that was kind of interesting to reflect on while reading your book. I, I'm curious for you, again, coming in with some background knowledge, but as you're learning and researching, are there any like stories, uh, just as like a tease, teaser for the book, like any uh, stories you got to share that were kind of the most fun for you to, to learn about? Uh, maybe even in like, say a Jesuit uh, context for <laughs> our Jesuit listeners, um, any figures or uh, again, stories that were the most fun for you?
1: Yeah, uh, too many to mention. Uh, I think that uh, in the in the time that the book is relatively short time that the book has been out, I I know that it's been um, it's been rewarding for me to see people become acquainted with a Jesuit uh, legend like Al McGuire at, at Marquette um because everybody knows the name and many people of a certain age uh, remember him as a broadcaster but not not as many people uh today can can uh recall the time when he was actually a coach and he won the national championship at Marquette in 1977 that was the last independent uh, program to do that and just some of the stories connected with him, uh, as an author, it's wonderful to find somebody who is so eminently quotable and who did such memorable and, uh, some occasionally outlandish things that as an author, all you have to do really is just stay out of the way or, or point and say, you know, look, this is, this is quite a, quite a character here. But, uh, one of his most famous, uh, uh, steps or events that he took, uh, he, he very much defined himself in uh, opposition to the NCAA and people still uh, like to complain about the NCAA and its, its business model. That uh, argument uh, is, has been going on literally for over 100 years and is still going on. So if you imagine uh, all of that contra- controversy plus uh, 50 years ago, the NCAA was far more uh, secretive and intrusive. The comparison that's usually made is to the FBI under or J. Edgar Hoover, and uh, McGuire was the perfect foil for that kind of environment. And he was so incensed at the uh, at the bracket that the NCAA selection committee gave Marquette in 1970. That he was about to take the step of turn, actually turning down an NCAA bid and going to the NIT instead, and he was telling the authorities at Marquette, "This is what this is what we should do." And he got a call from the the office of the president at Marquette and the the assistant to the president. Said, uh, Coach, I have to say, I I think we should play in the NCAA tournament and and not the NIT. And McGuire said to him in response, "Father, I don't hear confession, and you don't coach this team." (laughs) (laughs) What ended up happening? Did they? Did they? They go? He went. He went to the NIT, and it was a. It was a public and just to tie a bow on this, it was a public relations masterstroke because, you know, people were fed up with the NCAA and here was this guy, you know, throwing a bid back in their face. He went to the NIT and uh, Howard Cosell, who at the time was the leading you know sports media figure. Uh, he hunted Marquette and Al McGuire down. They were, they were staying at an undisclosed location in New York City, and he hunted them down and um, had an exclusive interview with McGuire, and so they play in the NIT, and his whole, McGuire's whole argument was, you know, my team is fantastic, you know, and they had an unbelievable record, and I think they were ranked eighth. And we're getting this bad bracket from the NCAA, no, we're going to the NIT. Well, the first game they play at the NIT, they promptly fall behind, and it looked like they were going to lose after one game and just just make a, a total mockery of, of McGuire's whole uh, argument. And they were playing UMass, and he called timeout. And he started screaming at his assistant coach, Hank Raymonds, uh, because uh, UMass had a player that was just tearing Marquette to shreds. And he yelled at Raymonds, who is that guy out there? And Hank Raymonds said, it's Julius Irving, <laughs> he's a he's a, so- he's a sophomore at UMass and he's from New York. And then uh, McGuire started yelling at one of his players from New York, Dean Memminger. New York, New York, we get all the best players from New York. Dean, how come you didn't tell me about this Julius guy? You know. <laughs> Uh Maguire was fortunate they came back and won, and they did win the NIT. So he got to make his point, but uh, just an amazing character.
0: That's too funny. So uh, you've transitioned us nicely into uh, what the, the part of this conversation I'm very excited about, uh, which is a, we're going to draft uh, Jesuit basketball players. So uh, you mentioned Julius Irving. He's not eligible. He did not go to a Jesuit school. But there are so many um, from the 27 uh, Jesuit schools. Uh, with basketball programs that I thought we could kind of make teams, uh, fantasy teams, if you will, um, of players through the ages. Uh, the one restriction is there's one player per school allowed. So this way we can Ooh. cover, we'll cover, we wow. can cover 10 schools this way wow. uh, since, um, yeah, did I not prepare you for that? I thought I mentioned that <laughs> as we were getting ready, but no, I feel I- like, in your research, uh, you're ready. You probably have the Rolodex. <laughs> um, I do have, I have made a list. Okay. Um, so uh, it's for me. Okay. This is how I'm thinking of this. This is essentially, you're rolling a ball out onto the court. You get five players. I get five players and like, All imagine right. them kind of like in their primes of their careers. Okay. Uh, and, and we'll see. So you kind of want to maybe think about balance. Do you need like a big player? You're going to go small. What are you going to do? And we'll say like, we're sort of playing in like today's basketball environment with a three-point line and, and those things though yeah, yeah. no, who yeah. knows i don't know anyway yeah. um we'll see we can just take a time, moment to mention why you're picking these guys but you'll see i think for folks who might not see the the um, real depth of uh rosters we have here we can make a few teams just yeah, yeah. One, one per school so why don't you could as the guest you can take the first pick oh. uh, so who's your first your first overall jesuit basketball player for your team
1: well thank you that's that's kind of you and i will point out that you know although i can prepare for this draft as much as I want. Uh, it, it, I, I do have to respond in real time to you taking my picks. So right. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll do my best here. But with the number one uh, overall pick in the Jesuit uh, all-time college basketball draft, John Gasaway takes uh, Bill Russell out of the University of San Francisco, uh, uh, leading uh, scorer and legend, from the teams that won the national title in 1995, 1990, 1955 and 1956. And that second team was the first team in NCAA history to win the national championship at, with a perfect record. So he's, he's a good guy to take first.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, what's the what did you learn about him or the the USF program in your your research? Again, to to me to think that you could ha- this, the era is so different in some ways. Like to imagine USF competing at that level, how did he end up there?
1: Yeah, the contrast between him. And another legend who might be taken with the next pick, <laughs> who was the object of a recruiting frenzy uh, th- some 30 years later, uh, could not be more stark. And I did not know that story before doing this book. Uh, he was not uh, recruited <laughs> out of high school, and once he became the Bill Russell, uh, he-, he quickly became the you know best player by far in college basketball and once that became clear his high school coach said with no uh insult meant just said honestly he wasn't even the best player on our high school team uh he just absolutely exploded he also grew uh three inches uh, at at the university of san francisco which helped he was from oakland he played at mcclyman's high school and uh San Francisco uh, did uh, win the 1949 NIT, an event that uh, later had doubt cast upon it due to uh, the teams in the field engaging in point shaving, but it was a very good San Francisco team. and One of the players from that uh, roster was uh, playing in a pickup game against this guy, Bill Russell, and he mentioned to the staff at San Francisco, you might want to give this guy a look. And that was the only scholarship offer he got. Uh, from Russell's perspective, he had lived since he was eight years old in Oakland and had never once heard the name University of San Francisco uttered. He had no idea, you know, that there was this Jesuit school on the other end of the Bay Bridge, and uh, the rest is history.
0: Okay, well, Bill Russell often, you know, mentioned in the, the, the you know, breath is one of the top five players of all time. Can't go wrong there. I had already written him in next to your name before you said it. um <laughs> Let's see. So with my pick, you know what I. I'm not going to take who you mentioned, who you gestured toward. You have your center, but I'm going to take Elgin Baylor uh, in honor of uh, Elgin's career. Um, Again, just someone who would fit well in today's game. So if I'm imagining us playing today's rules, someone who, you know, I think he still would would play well in today's setup. And again, we talked about him earlier. So not much more to say about him, but I'm happy to have him with my first pick. So we'll throw it back to you and you can take your uh, your second pick.
1: I just have to uh, doff my cap and say that's a, that's an excellent pick. You've uh, you've got rebounding and scoring uh, all all in one incredible package. So well done there. All right, for my second pick, uh, I'm going to uh, zoom forward a few decades. And uh, I'm going to take uh, Dwayne Wade out of Marquette, the oh. hero of their, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I started <laughs> writing that in
0: before you said, it. I, I'm really, I know exactly where you're going. This is your, <laughs> you're already set up here. You're in good shape. The, the hero of, their,
1: uh, of Marquette's run to the 2003 Final Four. And what I like about uh, Wade, particularly as a college player, uh, somewhat as, as the NBA legend that he rightly became uh, just a versatile, uh, player. And he, he did it all for Marquette and his coach at the time, Tom Green. Yes, he was a scorer. Uh, yes, he was a distributor, but a a force of nature on, on defense and even on the, on the defensive glass at at a relatively modest height. So, I mean, he would, he was a true basketball player who would do what it takes.
0: Yeah, no, I, again, I, I was thinking of taking him first, but I thought you could then pair Baylor with Russell and that would be pretty fierce. So, but yeah, no great pick. I remember like, I was like right at the end of high school during that run and I almost bought a Marquette t-shirt, even though I was from New Jersey and had no connection because they were you know so fun of him and Travis Diener and, uh, just running around and surprising people on, on that. So yeah, great memories of that. Um, but you, I do get now to take my favorite player of all time, which is less about his uh, his college career than his pro career, but I'll take Allen Iverson from Georgetown. Uh, I'm a big Sixers fan. There's just no one who just, I don't know, played harder and did more fun things and just fun to root for. And uh, yeah, so that I'm happy to, to take Iverson and not to take Patrick Ewing from Georgetown. Um who I also like and has had success as a coach there now a little bit, but uh, I can't leave Iverson on the board any longer. So I'm going to take him and pair him with, uh, with Eldred Baylor with my second pick.
1: All right. Well, you you've got a tough team already. I'll say that now are the, let me, let me clarify the rules. Once you've uh, touched on a school, and that school is off the board, right? I can't that touch school them anymore.
0: You can't take Ewing, right, or anyone else right. from Georgetown, no, no. Um, or Jimmy Butler or any more other Marquette players. Right, exactly. So we're trying to give it some love across the um, the Jesuit network today. So uh right. one per school. All right.
1: Uh, I think for my
0: next pick, then, I'll go with Jameer Nelson
1: out of uh, St. Joe's. Uh, he was the National Player of the Year in 2004. The early 2000s were uh, a time of, of plenty for uh, Catholic and, indeed, Jesuit uh, college hoops and with, with Wade and, and Nelson. And uh, Phil Martelli, a colorful character, getting into a scrap that year with Billy Vacker. But uh, I'll, I'll take Nelson with my third pick.
0: Oh yeah, as a former uh, South Jersey Philly guy, I, I love that that pick. Um, they were undefeated regular season going into the tournament, right? That that one year. That's and, right. Yeah, felt like they had a a run and then a really kind of heartbreaking uh, Elite Eight game against Oklahoma they State. They were
1: uh, they were undefeated going into the Atlantic Ten tournament, and then and then they got wiped out by uh, Xavier, ironically, uh, by like twenty in the first round of the A Ten tournament, which uh, elevated the controversy of should they receive a one seed, and then when they did. Uh, Packer on the selection show, uh, criticized that decision. <laughs> Martelli had a profane, uh, public response and, uh, it, it's, it's a great, uh, Catholic basketball story.
0: Yeah. We really, you could do a whole like uh, fantasy draft of coaches too. There've been so many of these colorful yeah, yeah, coaches yeah. Uh, and through time. Um, okay. So my third pick, I'll also take a point guard to pair with Iverson who I can play off ball. And I'll take Steve Nash from Santa Clara. Excellent. Um, so again, I think like that's often forgotten that this this legend of the game from Canada went to Santa Clara and played, which again is not historically a basketball powerhouse. Did you learn anything about him in your your research and his time there? You know, um, he he was there.
1: Uh, they had bad luck in the West Coast Conference tournaments uh, generally when he was there. Of course, he did get to play in the NCAA tournament, but that slightly overlapped with the era of uh, Loyola Marymount, which I devote a chapter to in the book, and uh, he, was, he was a sensational college player, and he made a splash at the time. No, it wasn't necessarily obvious that he was going to go on to be an, an NBA legend, but uh, he, he was very much uh, a topic of conversation, I would say, in the 1990s. He, he was he a legit. He was a wizard as a point guard.
0: Yeah. So I think, again, part of the trick with this, too, is thinking, like, are you thinking just the college career? I am, in my mind, bringing the whole package in the pro career and everything. Uh, so I'm happy to have uh, to have Nash and Iverson together in the backcourt. Uh, all right. So up to you for your, your fourth pick. So far, you have um, Bill Russell, Dwayne Wade and Jameer Nelson. So who, where are you going next?
1: Yeah, I think I have to go old school uh, with my next pick because. Uh, I can see the headlines uh, off of this podcast if this person goes unpicked. And it would be like, uh, I have experience with this at ESPN. When you make lists of things, the <laughs> the immediate response is the one, the one person you left off. And I, I, I don't want that to happen. So uh, I am going to go with Bob Cousy at uh, Holy Cross. And uh, he was uh, it, perhaps the... Uh, the first, uh, Jesuit, uh, basketball legend. And, uh, he was, he was an amazing, uh, college player and of course went on to great success with the, with the Boston Celtics.
0: What, what, uh, nuggets about Kuzi, uh, did you unearth that were surprising, uh, in your research?
1: He was a feisty guy for one thing. Uh, he, he got into, uh, a, a quarrel with his, uh, coach, doggy Julian and, uh, over, uh, you know, missing a practice. And so, Uh, Julian benched him at the next game and then late in the first half when Holy Cross was behind and needed its best players, he gestured for Kuzi to go in the game and Kuzi remained firmly seated and said, no, uh, not going to happen. He is reputed to be the first and you know, a great example of how can we ever confirm this one way or the other. But Cousy is confirmed to be the first college player ever to execute a behind the back dribble during a game. Uh, just a, a legendary uh, handler of the ball and uh, uh, a, a schoolboy legend uh, coming out of New York City. Uh, he was recruited to Holy Cross at a time when they did not have a place where they played home games. And as Cousy was touring the campus as a recruit, he said, Coach, where do we play? And they said, uh, the response was, well, there's a gymnasium under construction. Well, the gymnasium was not constructed until the mid-1970s, but Cousy Cousy went there anywhere. And uh, they did win the NCAA tournament and national title in 1947 with Bob Cousy
0: all right well i'm gonna flash forward a few decades this is kind of a sentimental pick but in terms of someone who you just like i, I don't know i would want to go into battle with this guy uh and again because such a you know tragic story but um another Philly connection i'll go with hank gathers uh from loyola Marymount for my fourth pick who uh just like a fearsome scorer and rebounder played above his height um again and, and of course like tragically you know died during a game right he was playing and and uh, had a heart condition and um, and was on those great, you know, that great LMU team, uh, you mentioned that you have a whole chapter about, so I'm happy to take him on the team and also to learn a little bit about, uh, about him from, uh, your book. What were, uh, some of the things you, you uncovered about, about Hank and that team from the, uh, the late eighties.
1: He was a remarkable player. He's a very good uh, draft pick. It would be the first thing that I would say. Uh, it's on. Uh, he was a, a ferocious rebounder and a great scorer, both. And he. He had played himself into a position where he very likely could have had an NBA career, which is remarkable because at six foot seven, he was in effect playing center in college. But I mean, that's how good he was, was he could have been a a rebounding workhorse uh, at the next level. And uh, famously, uh, after he passed away during a game at the West Coast Conference Tournament, Uh, The league gave the uh, automatic bid to Loyola Marymount because they had won the regular season. The coach of Loyola Marymount, Paul Westhead, said uh, he didn't know if his players could or would want to continue and he would abide by whatever decision they came to. And he, he left them alone to decide. And they decided literally in less than one minute, yes, they wanted to play in the NCAA tournament. Uh, Gathers was a natural right-hander who was a terrible free throw shooter, and in his senior season, uh, driven desperation, he announced that he was going to start shooting free throws left-handed. That is where the tribute uh, during the 1990 tournament from his teammate Bo Kimball came from. Uh, Kimball shot the first free throw of each game in the tournament left-handed as a tribute to Gathers, and uh, famously... Uh, There's a great uh, if you don't uh, get to my book first, there's a great ESPN 30 of 30 for 30 on this topic called the Guru of Go. Uh, But they they made it all the way to the elite eight. (laughs) And particularly in their round of 32 game against defending champion Michigan, they set records that still stand for most points in a game. Most threes by a team, and uh, most threes by a player, Jeff Ryer. So it was a it was a great story in 1990, and uh, it was uh, a privilege to be able to to share a little bit of it in the book.
0: Hmm. Uh, excellent. All right. So uh, on to your fifth and final pick, John.
1: Oh, we've run out of uh, <laughs> we've run out of institutions that are untouched. But I think uh, keep, in keeping with my theme of national players of the year. Uh, I do have to go with uh, Doug McDermott out of Creighton. He was an absolute uh, scoring machine, and he did so efficiently. He made his shots, and uh, he was just a, a remarkable player uh, for the Blue Jays uh, here about uh, 8, 9, 10 years ago
0: yeah no can't go wrong still making it in the NBA uh finding a role for himself um son of the the head coach uh still at Creighton uh great yeah just a great college player certainly um yeah that's that's a really good pick that's like a strong five there um let's see though I, I, I I'm like but my, my identity you know with Baylor Iverson and gathers especially like we're kind of you know we're tough. We're gonna yeah. come at you, so I'm gonna yeah. keep up that um, that mentality. <clears throat> with david west from xavier to kind of be nice to go this is like an old-fashioned team in some ways right we not nice, the most yeah. shooting uh, but after i said we're going to play by today's rules um but yeah happy to have david west to adjust. you know in terms of just like the toughest guy so much fun to watch um both in, in college and the pros uh, from an underrated xavier program that's you know been really solid uh over the past couple decades um so yeah i i'm happy for him he and uh, hank you know can take turns playing small ball center on this team. Um, but yeah, I feel good about him. Yeah. Those are two, uh,
1: those are two strong teams and to, uh, everybody that we left off. Uh, I know. Okay. <laughs> don't, right. don't, don't yell at me. I, Wait a minute. I,
0: I... <laughs> we left off someone who is, uh, really, you, we don't have anyone from Gonzaga on this team on either of our teams. <laughs> we don't have John Stockton on our teams. Um, we're going to hear from Gonzaga people, uh, first. Um, and understandably they've had a lot of great players I think Stockton's probably the Gonzaga pick um, but uh, I guess we went with some some underdogs that's good so yeah so people left on the, the board here at, well obviously Stockton and then or anyone else from Gonzaga who would be your Gonzaga Adam Morrison from Gonzaga is on the cover of your book who was again a great college player who then uh, didn't quite make it in the next level but in terms of that run he had pretty unbelievable yeah um,
1: Adam Morrison liked to wear a T-shirt that said, if it wasn't for offense, I'd play defense. I, I think that, uh,
0: that summed him up rather well. So much more fun offense than defense. Um, exactly. Let me think, who else on the board? Um, Marquette has some other great players, obviously. BC, Jared Dudley was my pick, would be on my pick from BC. He uh, still is hanging around the league and is kind of like a mentor figure and also very funny. He's a funny guy. Um, Larry Hughes from SLU. Can't forget our friends out at SLU, Larry Hughes, kind of in that like pretty ugly era of basketball in like the early part of the millennium. But uh but still he you know, never saw a shaw he didn't like, right? Um Detroit Mercy, Dave I can't never get his last name right, Dave Deboucher, Dave Debusher. Yeah, Debusher, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, from the yeah. Knicks, the kind of another undersized center type. Uh Fordham had Smush Parker who played in the league uh for a while too uh yeah so those are those are some of the others i, I had been preparing so make sure all of our schools get some love today
1: and um, even as even as we speak i think i'm getting a text here from sister Jean saying what about jerry harkness at loyola chicago i mean we could, just, <laughs> we, that's could, right. we, could we could go on and on and on
0: i know yeah. so yeah that's uh so this has been a lot of fun Um uh, we'll put up on twitter to see whose team wins i think your team I don't know that Russell Wade combo, especially is, is pretty fierce though. I think Bob Cousy is someone who, if you threw out today uh, against like ask him to try to guard Steve Nash or Iverson, I don't know if he'd be able to stay in front of them. Um, but uh, Ooh, that's the fun of these hope, fantasy things. I hope Koozie doesn't hear you say that. He's... No, I guess that's right. He's, yeah, no, he, he's, yeah, he's, he's, he's feisty. Yeah, he's feisty. I mean, yeah, that's... yeah, that's always hard. I mean, even for me, like, I, you have people have these arguments about, oh, is it Jordan or LeBron? And you watch, like, some of these, you know, clips of Jordan going against defenses that, like, really were not, you know, all that impressive uh, in his day. This is part of the reason why I, I say LeBron's better. I'm also, you know, a child of uh, the eighties and nineties growing up then. So I didn't really see Jordan at the peak of his powers until, uh, whereas I've seen all of LeBron. Anyway, that's a whole nother debate for another day, but um, thanks so much, John Gassaway. Again, the book is uh, miracles on the hardwood, the hope and a prayer story of a winning tradition in Catholic college basketball. I uh, will be watching the tournament to see uh, how many Jesuit or other schools uh, move other Catholic school. I guess Villanova is the one other move along um, in this coming weekend. Uh, yeah, just a lot of fun. And thanks for taking the time and your busy schedule to go down uh, memory lane a little bit and uh, talk some Jesuit hoops.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C., AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.